All right, Isaiah. We're going Old Testament today. Isaiah 58. I'll wait till you turn there because not a lot of people spend a lot of time in Isaiah. It's got some really strange things going on in there. And we got a lot to do today. I think we'll get out in time. I'm not sure what that means, but we're going to go through the entire chapter of Isaiah 58 today. Uh Uh-huh, that's what I said, the entire thing. At least it's not Psalm 119. You all there? Anybody need a Bible? We got Bibles in the back if you need one. If not, here we go. Verse 1. Shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out, they seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. So God is calling Isaiah to bring this message to some people. And he doesn't want him to go person to person. He doesn't want it to be a personal message. He doesn't want it to even be kind of given calmly or quietly. He wants him to go and shout. He wants his voice to sound like a trumpet. Now, the word trumpet in the Hebrew is the word shofar. And it's actually a ram's horn. And it was used, it was blown to get people's attention. When they would hear this thing go off, if you can hear it, you would stop what you were doing. And you, would, and you would see what was going on. You would see what was going to be happening. So this was a way to get people's attention. God says, Isaiah, I want you to go with urgency, with a loud voice, and tell these people that they are in an outright rebellion. They are not living the way that I have called them to live. Now, what is interesting is verse 2. I'm going to read it again. For day after day they seek me out, they seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. It's intriguing that the people who are in rebellion, the people that are sinning, they're not some pagan country worshiping false gods. These are people that seem like they're actually seeking God. Like, like day by day, it says they, they seek me and they act like they're a nation that, that everything is okay, that they're not doing anything wrong. It would look like that they're taking their religion very seriously. Just a few chapters before in Isaiah 55, he would say, seek and know the Lord. He would tell the people. And maybe, maybe they're trying to understand that and take that to heart. Because it would seem like they are trying to figure this God thing out. It's almost like they believe that if they don't engage in their religion, and if they don't engage in their worship, they are not going to receive God's blessing. And worse, if they don't take part in these things, not only will they not get the blessing, but they may incur God's wrath. And so these are a people that look like they're interested in following God. These are people that look like they're doing what they should be doing, doing the right thing. Now, that's a very interesting idea for me because I have to ask the question, can you really be engaging God or think you're engaging God or trying to engage God and completely miss the point, completely miss 
the whole God idea. Completely miss what God is calling to you, you to do. Can you do God things and still miss the God thing? Well, according to this, the answer is yeah. And that, that, should, that should scare us a little bit. That should put a check in our spirit just a little bit. There's a story in Matthew 23 where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. And he's like, you know, you guys, you guys tithe mint and dill and cumin, but, but you're missing the more important things of the law. You're missing justice and you're missing faithfulness and you're missing mercy. He goes, yes, you should be tithing. That's all well and good, but you can't, you can't not engage these things. He called them the weightier things of the law. You see, and in the Mosaic law, in, 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 the Old, in the Torah, tithing is very laid out. It, it, it's, it's, it's 10%. That's what the Old Testament says that tithing should be. You give God 10%. So there's no, there's no vagueness about it. But things like mercy, that's, that's open to interpretation. And, and these religious leaders, they, they got, the, they got the, the, the thing, the tithing, but they're missing these other things. And Jesus says, man, you guys, you guys missed the point. You are missing the very heart of God. And the problem is, these people that Isaiah is talking to, they want God to work his justice. They want God to work his righteousness. And the funny thing is, and it's funny, funny, not funny, haha, is if God did, I don't think they would like the results. If God actually gave just decisions, I don't think these people would be sitting too pretty. And so let's bring this into 2009. You know, how many times have, have you, I mean, even me, I've, I've asked God, you know, God, you know, those people aren't doing, you know, that church, what's wrong with that? And, and, and I'm pointing my finger. Or you hear Christians pray that, that Jesus, please come back soon. But really, I wonder if we're ready for Jesus to come back. I wonder, I wonder if we should be the one pointing any finger at anyone. Because are we really, really, I mean, really, really ready for God's just decision? Verse 3. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Let me just a little side note here. If you say, well, why have, I'm humble and you haven't noticed it, probably not so humble. Okay. Um, Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. These people have some chutzpah here, okay? They're going, you know what, God, we, we got something against you. We're going to lodge our complaint against you. And they really, this really shows where they believe they are. They, they think that their religion, they have got it right, and God must be, must be in the wrong. God hasn't figured this thing out. We're doing everything we need to do, but God is obviously not keeping up his end of the bargain. He says, they, they say, Look, we're fasting. We're depriving ourselves of food. But they're doing it so they get something from God. They fast so they could get God to do what they want God to do. And you know what? He's not playing their game. He's not, he's not listening. He hasn't been paying attention. And so they complain, how unfair. God, hello, 
We're doing all this stuff. We're even humble. And you don't even notice us. It would seem that these people are operating from a very humanistic, simple equation. We do, and then God should do. We make our deposit into our little bank of religion, and God should deliver us the product, the finished product, the good product. But God is not listening. God won't play their game. Their religious behavior is so they can try to get something from God. So they can try, imagine thinking you can manipulate God into giving you something or to, to blessing you. And they, and, they, and they sugarcoat, they candy coat this thing in fasting. They want what they want. But now let's not judge them because we do this all the time. I mean, when, when, you, when you got something big, right, and, and you need to pray about it, some of those things, those big things in your life, you know prayer isn't enough. So you have to fast. Because for some reason, when you combine fasting and prayer together, God notices. God, God, God hears what you're saying. And he is going to act. He's going to get off. It, um, where am I going with that one? Let me see. Check. Uh, off his tukis. A little more Yiddish there. Okay. And, and he is going to work. So we can't judge them. We have the same mindset. And these people are complaining. We fasted. And we get nothing from you, God. Hello, where are you? In, in the Torah, there's, there's, there's one fast that, that's stated, and it's, it's um, on the Day of Atonement. Now, there's many other fasts that the prophets would institute um, to humble themselves before God. But, but this, this idea of, of the one-day fast in for the um, Day of Atonement is to start to focus on your sin, to deny yourself, to, um, to afflict the soul, to realize the seriousness of your sin and begin the process of repenting. But you see, this group of people have missed the point. Repentance is not for us to get something from God. Repentance is very simple. You realize you are wrong and God is right. And whether or not he does a thing for you, you are wrong and God is right. They don't fast to gain deeper intimacy with God. They fast to get God to do something. They fast to get God to bless them. And their religion religion and their religious disciplines, they are all to gratify themselves. And they are trying to get God to give in to their own selfish desires. And because of that, because they're focused on themselves, listen to what it says about their fasting. You do as you please. You exploit all of your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife, and you strike each other with wicked fists. Their fasting, their religion, their disciplines of their religion are ending in oppression. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Verse five, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. You know, sometimes, and for some people, um, 
our religion, our religious behaviors, fasting, prayer, singing, worship, church can be very self-indulgent. In many instances, it it can be very self-indulgent to prove how religious we are, how pious we are. Look at how I'm here every day. So am I. Maybe not every day, but, but, you know, we go to church all the time. I sit in the front. I raise my hands. And sometimes, not all the time, please hear me. I'm not saying that everybody who raises their hand or at church all the time is faking it. But sometimes it could be just to feed our own egos. Our religious behaviors can be very self-indulgent. And God is calling his people to something very, very different here. He says, if you're going to deprive yourself, do it. Do it on the behalf of the poor. Do it on behalf of the hungry. Do it on behalf of people who don't have a place to live, not for your own religiosity. It's the very nature of God to give himself to people who can never pay it back. That would be all of us. And there's no clearer evidence of God working in somebody's life than for somebody to do the same. Isaiah says, you, you, you want to stop something? You want to abstain from something? Why don't, you, why don't you stop oppression? Why don't you stop hunger? Why, why are you denying yourself of food when people around you are going hungry? When there's people around you that have no place to live, when there's people around you that have no clothes, what is the purpose of your fasting? What is the purpose of your religion? And in verse 7, the way it's written in the original um, Hebrew language it, it, God is not offering a suggestion. Well, maybe you can feed the hungry. Maybe you could, you know, help out with the poor. It's, he's commanding. These things are not optional. God is saying that this is the point. Verse 8. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with pointing the finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noon day. When we come to the decision to make religion about us, when we come to the decision to take control of our own lives and make it all about us, the result of that decision is its darkness. When we hold ourselves of the, we hold ourselves as the priority. We choose, we choose a lie over the truth. We choose the creation over the creator. We ultimately choose darkness over light. And it's a realization that we don't know God at all. These people that Isaiah is talking to, they think they're seeking God, but they, they don't know God at all. And God's like, really? Do you expect me to show up for this for you? for your selfishness, but it says that those who reflect God's character, those who have God's heart, he will be always 
present. And isn't this what religion should be about? Read the book of James, what religion really is. And then it says our, our righteousness will go before us. And it's a, this, is, this is a very important idea. It's, it's both the righteousness of God and the righteousness of our actions that will precede us, go before us, that will push back the darkness in this world. God's righteousness, through grace, gives us the ability to live in the way that he has called us to live. Let me say that again. It's important you get this. God's righteousness, through grace, gives us the ability to live the way that God has called us to live. God's desire for his people and God's desire for us in this very room is that we would be saved from ourselves. That we would no longer focus on me and us and I, but that we would reshift our focus, refocus, and have a genuine concern for other people. Three things he's calling us to in, in, in these later part of the verses. He says, to remove the yoke of oppression, all kinds of oppression, whether it be social, economic, political, spiritual, emotional. God wants us to remove the yoke of oppression. And he says, stop pointing the finger. And it has this, this idea of stop mocking, stop holding people in contempt. Contempt is a really, really good word. It just means stop disrespecting people. The oppression of the poor is never going to stop unless we, the rich, and we are the rich, we stop seeing them as, as just pitiful victims or, or, or viewing them in contempt or scorn. You know, a few weeks ago, I, was, uh, I took, went to uh, Acts 4 in Meriden when they had the big clothing giveaway. And I was working the, the soundboard for Tim and Ashley while they were doing their, um, their illusion. So I, just was, I was sitting there for a lot of the time, and I was watching people come in. Now, Acts 4 gives away clothing to inner-city people and, um, you know, of low income, and they come, and they don't, they don't charge anything. They just give the clothes away for free. These people can come in, and they just walk around, and they shop. And they just take, you know, there's, there's certain limits on what they can take. They get a lot of free clothes. And I'm, sta- and I'm sitting there and I'm looking as they're walking in, North Face jackets. I'm like, you're here for free clothes? And, and like really, you know, Nike sneakers and Jordans. And, and, and one guy had a gold chain on that was like as thick as my, my finger. And I'm thinking, dude, you sell that chain, you eat for a year. And, and I'm just sitting there going, what is wrong with these? These people don't need that. It's exactly what God is telling me to stop doing. Because you know what? You know, I share humanity with those people. I share brokenness with those people. I share hurts with those people. I share poor decisions with those people. They are no better than I am. God says, stop pointing the finger at others. Stop mocking. Stop holding people with, looking at people disrespectfully. God has created everyone and loves everyone I am no special than anyone else in this world. And then he says to spend ourselves in behalf of the hungry. And it's interesting that this idea comes in the context of fasting. Um, these people are trying to show their devotion to God by denying themselves. They, they, they want, they're making themselves hungry to try to honor God, to try to seek him, to try to show devotion. And God says, I would rather you show your devotion to me by feeding the hungry instead of making yourself hungry. Fasting is, 
It is a spiritual discipline. And I would encourage you all to, to discipline, to take up the discipline sometime of fasting. But fasting is a self-oriented discipline. Feeding the hungry is, is other, others-oriented. Fasting is an affliction of the soul for the pouring out of our spirit to God. God says, I would much rather you pour out your soul in the ministry to other people. And don't make your religion always about you. Isaiah 11. We're moving right through this. It's not so bad. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will rise up and will raise up the old aged foundations. And you will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. The sin that has destroyed these cities are the sins of the people. And it will be their righteousness through the grace of God that will rebuild their cities. Here's the thing. We always talk about sin as this, this thing out there, the sins of the world humanity, we commit the sins. It's, it's, it's our sins that have broken this world, our decision to live outside of the harmonies of God that have broken this world. The collective sins of humanity are the reasons why people are starving. People are dying from very curable, treatable diseases. People have no clean drinking water. The sins of humanity have caused those things. And God has a plan though. God has a plan to restore it all back to being whole. And that plan includes us. That we would go into the world and restore. That we would go into the world and reconcile. God gives us the dignity to fix the very things that we have broken. And then the end of the chapter ends like this. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and, your, and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The problem with us people throughout all of history is our desire to have our desires fulfilled. It's, it's this, this self-gratification. We're all there on some degree, some level. We ebb and flow in and out of it. And it's because of that that many times others, and you can deem others or um, you know, define that any way you'd like, but others take a low priority. God is saying this, and sur- surrender your desires to me. And be others-centered, and you're going to find me. God says that those who give themselves away, they will ultimately find themselves. That if those who would give away the throne will receive the crown. Now, some of you may be sitting here, and yeah, great Christmas message, and, and you're thinking to yourself, Dear, dear pastor, why do you bore us with this Old Testament dribble? Because of the cross of Jesus, we are no longer under the law. 
but I would say nay, nay. <laughs> let me remind you, let me remind you of a passage that we read about six weeks ago when we started our Advent conspiracy, Matthew chapter 25. And you don't have to go there. I'll read it for you. I'm good that way. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. This is verse 31. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or need clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did, for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are, who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will answer, Lord, when, we see, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Can Christmas still change the world? It's estimated that, um, and, and it's a pretty pretty solid guesstimation, guess it would take about $20 billion to give food and clean drinking water to the entire world. Everybody on the planet, yeah, you'd have to bang heads with governments and all that, but, but we're talking about just actual dollars and cents. It would take about $20 billion to give food and clean drinking water to everybody on the planet. Americans this year in 2009, we will spend $20 billion on ice cream. And we say that we're not a rich nation. Hmm. Can Christmas change the world? Remember, we started off by asking the question, I think Christmas has to first change us. When we enter into the Advent story, when we enter into the Christmas story, I mean, really enter in. And it sounds like some of you, you, you did it, man. You, you, you decided to make a difference and, and, and do it differently. And, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna move through this, I think, every year. We're, we're not going to let this go. We're going to try to paradigm shift Christmas. By the end, you're just going to be in here with sewing machines and fudge makers. I don't know, whatever. And, and, but, but, but. 
but when we really enter into it, something begins to change. Something, something begins to be different. We are transformed, and then we go out and be agents of that transformation. God, God is on the move. And when, when Jesus' followers, when we help the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, when, when we give generously, the Jesus story is told over and over and over again. So, why bother with church? Unless the church answers the call to actually be church. I hear a lot of, read a lot of, even on Facebook, I see it posted, a lot of complaints from Christian folks. And they're, ans- they're asking the question, when are we going to get back to being a Christian nation? Because obviously Obama is ruining everything. And, and when are we going to get back to our Christian roots? And, you know, I really wrestle with that statement because I'm not sure we were ever really a Christian nation to begin with. Just because we mentioned God a few times, we put, you know, we trust him on our money, never really made us a Christian nation. But, but, but evangelicals, we like to complain. We have to complain about something. And so we like to complain a little bit. When are we going to get back to our Christian roots? And so the conservatives, conservatives blame the liberals. And the liberals, they, they shake their finger at the conservatives. And churches argue with churches. And denominations argue with other denominations. And denominations argue within their own denomination. And, and I've heard Christians say, I'm worried that we are going to become a Muslim nation because Islam is on the rise. And I could imagine that there are everyday Muslims in our country worried that we're going to become a Christian nation because our history together hasn't been really good on both sides. And it's sad to think that there's a people group that would fear Jesus followers. It doesn't make sense to me. You know, making abortion illegal is not going to make this a Christian nation. Making gay marriage illegal is not going to make this a Christian nation. Getting rid of liberal politicians and their liberal policies is not going to make this a Christian nation. Maybe you all need to vote Republican and conservative. That's not going to make us a Christian nation. A Republican president. No, that hasn't worked either. Okay, how about this? More Christian bands and Christian radio stations, huh? No, it's not going to work. Okay, 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 okay. How about this one? More books written on the easy steps to live the Christian life. It's not going to make us a Christian nation. You know what, Will? When we Christians decide that we want our nation to be Christian, we will have a Christian nation. When we decide to start living the way that this book calls us to live, that's when things change. Instead of complaining about how other people are living, maybe we should live the way God calls us to live. No one can be mad at us for feeding the poor. No one can be angry at us for fighting for justice or visiting the sick or helping the prisoner. I mean, I guess they could be mad, but they would just be stupid. 
No one can argue with a life lived in generosity. We will have a Christian nation when we decide we want one. And we start living the call that God has called us to. When we finally start loving all people. And that love begins to transform them, transform their lives, and it begins to transform their world. There's that Jewish proverb. It was said at the end of Schindler's List, and it always rings in my mind. When you save one life, you save the world in time. We will have a Christian nation when we get off our butts and we want one. I believe Christmas can change the world. I believe it with all my heart. But we have to be agents of the change. God has called us to do the work, not just in the month of December, but every day that we would worship fully every day, that we would spend less every month, that we would give more of ourselves all of the time and that we would love all people. Can Christmas change the world? It can. It can. Let's pray. God, as we end our conspiracy, I pray that it's not the end but a beginning, a new beginning for not only this church, but a movement to take place that we would live the life you've called us to live, that we would love the way you've called us to love, that we would give the way you've called us to give. That we would have the, the heart of God, that we would move through this world with energy and purpose and creativity that we would hold our heads high because we are Jesus followers. So God, thank you for your word that you've caused it to be written. And God, as we move now into a new year, let this new year be a year of engaging worship, spending less, spending differently, that we would give of ourselves more and more and that you would show us what it means to love all people.